We want our children to do well. Teachers want their students to achieve their potential, and I've never met a student that's actively trying to fail. So given that we all want the same thing, you'd think that the relationship between these three parties would be harmonious and collaborative. But often, those bonds could do with tweaking and strengthening. Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teens to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. These could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, and so you can be sure that we'll be covering the topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at the relationship between parents, teachers, and students. It's a real pleasure to be joined by Russell Hobby. Russell is the chief executive of teacher training organisation Teach First, whose stated mission is to unlock the potential in all of our children, not just some. Before joining Teach First, Russell was a general secretary of the National Association of Head Teachers. Russell, thank you for joining me. After the first lockdown, we heard a lot of parents talking about a newfound respect for the teaching profession. And having spent a handful of weeks, months, as a quasi-pseudo-classroom assistant for one child, I've absolutely no idea how they manage with a class of 30. And when we've been talking to our students, and also catching up with their parents, it's, it's a case that increasingly these parents are realising that teaching isn't just about passing on facts and getting students ready for exams. Now, some of that misconception might well come down from our own time as students, and certainly I don't remember there being such a focus on, for example, pastoral care when I was at school. Russell, is it just poor recollection on my part, or has the role and function of a teacher evolved since we parents were the pupils? I think schools have changed a huge amount over the last few decades. I don't know when you were at school, so I don't know how far we have to go back in time. I was at school in the 80s and 70s. I don't know if uh, maybe you were a bit later. No, thank you. But no, I was um, I was a couple of decades ago, we'll put it. <laughs> let's leave it at let's leave it at that. Um, and I, I think schools are very different places. I mean, the basic job, the function they perform in society hasn't changed. But I think one of the big changes is that schools have got a lot better than they were. I just don't think we recognize that often enough. Some of the things that I remember going on back in the 80s would just be unconscionable in this uh, in this era. So the quality of work that's going on, the quality of behavior, the care and attention, I think has, has, has hugely advanced. Um, at the same time, the pressure on schools and parents and the children within those schools has also increased dramatically. And those things are not unconnected. Um, Some of that pressure was helpful, actually. It raised standards, it raised expectations, but um, it's possibly gone on too far and for too long uh, on this. So that that constant sort of seeming grind of league tables, inspections, 
um, one exam after another, year after year. Um, there's a balance to be struck between those extremes. But but I think it's really important to remember that our, our schools are a lot more effective, a lot better places, a lot more caring places than many of them were uh, a few decades ago. And so parents probably do need a bit of a reset of expectations. You hear about the, the schools that need special measures, or you'll hear about um, developing and, uh, and all of these kinds of things. And actually, you're right, there is sort of skews the focus, doesn't it, um, for parents that, that schools still have a way to go. Whereas presumably, they're, that's either benchmarked or it's um, in, a, in a minority of schools that are like that. It is a minority of schools, which is of no um, comfort to a, a student or parent who is at one of those minority uh, of schools. So there'll be sitting people sitting here listening to this saying, that doesn't match my experience. I am not happy with the, the education that I am getting or that my children uh, are getting. But I do think that is a minority experience. Um, I think there are some schools in the state sector that are outperforming public schools, private schools in this uh, in this country, and we don't often recognize that. And unfortunately, although we must address the underperformance, and if a school is failing, it should be, something should be done about it. Unfortunately, the things that you do around that um, also have an effect on every school in the country. So schools that shouldn't be worrying about what Ofsted thinks, because they're basically good schools, are spending time worrying what Ofsted thinks because of the risk of it. And I think that makes for an education system which doesn't take risks, uh, plays it safe, um, tries to go for the middle ground because they don't quite know what the uh, inspector is, uh, is looking for. Uh, and sometimes we prioritise the exam grades, which which I don't think are irrelevant, but I think we we prioritise those grades over over the things that are harder to measure within schools. And so, what are some of those kinds of things that you would look for that, as you say, are harder to measure? First of all, I think I I need to be really clear that exam grades are pretty useful to people. That you won't get the top jobs, access to the top jobs, the top universities, the apprenticeship schemes, unless you've got reasonable grades. Uh, and I don't think we should be apologetic in saying that part of the function of schools is to is to, is to get those qualifications for, for young people. Because I know that the parents who send their children to private schools expect that as a, as a basic um, minimum. Um, so we should, we should go for that. Uh, and that should be part of education. It should also be, however, that you know, we should recognise that, that the exam can only capture a small proportion of what is learnt uh, and that it's often the easier to measure portions of what is learnt. So what I would also be interested in is, is there a breadth of learning? Are we learning for learning's sake? Are we picking up knowledge and information and understanding for its own sake as well as for the sort of instrumentality or the utility uh, of what we're doing? Uh, and then additionally, what price is being paid for those results? Uh, and th this is what doesn't show up in the exam grades, that if you strip back to a relentless focus on the subjects that are being measured, um, if you give such high levels of homework that children don't have time to recover uh, outside of schools, if you work your stuff to the bone uh, in order to produce those results, the exam grades will look good, but the, the happiness, the welfare, the confidence, the optimism, the resilience of both staff and students in school will be will be suffering for that. Uh, and there's no easy way of that showing up on these league tables as well. So um, it's always important when people get great results to also think about, well, what price did you pay for those results? Certainly something we've seen as Jake's been looking at universities over the course of the last couple of years, that actually part of the which university do I want to go to is a measure of how happy the students are 
um, ratings that the students have given the professors. And as you say, it's interesting, actually, that there's still only a very one-dimensional look at a league table, which is that snapshot of how they performed in the exams. The, the league tables of universities have more dimensions than those for school, because actually you can look at university league tables and find student satisfaction, you can find student results, you can find employment prospects and destinations, whether they're a great research university. We pretty much only measure school performance on the exam results that, that come up. Now, Ofsted does give it a, a, a slightly wider balance. Ofsted will look at the culture of the school. They will look at the, the behavior and discipline policies. They will look at the careers advice and the, and the wider opportunities. But Ofsted visits every so often uh, at quite infrequent uh, intervals. So when you look at how we measure, say, the performance of a primary school, that's just a couple of hours worth of exam sat at the end of year six. Uh, uh, for secondary school, there's a, a broader breadth. We look at GCSEs and A-levels and vocational qualifications, but it's still a snapshot of what's going on. I think it's an important snapshot, but I think that we we lose track of what we're doing if all we look at is the numbers rather than the kind of the broader context in which those numbers are achieved. Certainly, but it's fair to say that, that teachers themselves certainly in our experience um, as a study buddy, don't, don't just rely on um, teaching for the sake of passing the exam and completely accept that those grades, certainly in our current system, um, which is our foreseeable system, are, are important. But those teachers are also taking on board um, sort of these metacognition issues. They're looking at um, growth mindset as well as well-being and, and all of these other aspects. Do you see that as being an increasing role that teachers have uh, outside of um, subject and domain expertise? It's one of the great reassurances to me that whatever government policy says should happen, teachers still pretty much decide what they want to do. Once the classroom door is shut, uh, there's very little way for the Secretary of State or Ofsted or anyone else to monitor what is being said and done in that classroom. Now, for some people, that might fill them with horror and think, my God, how can we ensure what's happening? For me, it fills me with a bit of relief that some of the wilder extremes of government policy can get mitigated. And, and you know, teachers know their students. They care about their students. They do care, as you said, about those broader um, outcomes. And I know that they will go for that and they will do and try and inculcate those those sorts of things. Now, for me, I am, there is a place for it, but I'm less keen on specific lessons around character attributes. I don't want people to really teach resilience as a subject in its own right, for example, or determination or, you know, um, empathy. Uh, I, there will be limited times when you do a touch on those, but I think more of that is about how you teach rather than what you teach. It's about the culture and ethos of the whole school. It's the way schools do things. So you can you can develop a growth mindset by the way that you teach maths and the way that you teach English. Uh, and given that there's a very, very limited time in the curriculum to cover all of the things that we would wish to cover, I think being able to sort of strike two birds with one stone there, both get great math skills and develop a bit of resilience, I think is the way we're going. So for me, it's less about let, what do I see in the curriculum, more about What's the feel of the school and how does it treat people? Uh, and so much can be done in that, both inside the lessons, but in lunch break and breaks in, in everything about the school. Mm, absolutely. And, and teaching is a vocation, isn't it? I mean, this is, there are, and certainly what we've seen over lockdown is that whereas parents might have said, well, it's all right for you, you knock off at half three, um, you have all of these beautiful long summer holidays, despite the fact we never seem to have beautifully long summers. Actually, 
that, that can't be enough that, that teachers are doing this because they really are um, in the vast majority, unfortunately, obviously not in all, but in the vast majority of cases, driven to help pupils, to children, young people, to reach their potential and to, to go on to do great things. Teachers work really hard. Um, and just the stuff that we see isn't the stuff that goes on. The, day, the time when children leave school isn't when the, the time when teachers stop working uh, as well. Uh, and they will be marking books and planning lessons. You know, So for every hour of teaching in front of the children, there's a, quite a lot of time that has to go around that um, to make sure that that hour is, is well spent. Uh, and that intrudes into teachers' uh, home lives. Um, there's the very few teachers who don't take piles of books home with them at the, at the end of the day. And it intrudes into the holidays that they have. And just because children aren't in a school doesn't mean that teachers and staff aren't in schools as well. Um, and, and yes, there is more flexibility. You know, you can take a spend more time with your own children during the summer holidays as a teacher. But I think that is counteracted by the work. And you look at the surveys that are done across Europe, and we find that that, that um, England's teachers work harder than most groups uh, of teachers uh, across, the, across the world. They're motivated by various different things. All of them uh, of any worth are motivated by a love for children, uh, I want to see them grow and develop. Some of them are also, you know, love their subject area and they have a body of knowledge that they want to convey uh, to people um, or they are passionate about the drama or sports or music that goes on in the school. We are, we are very lucky as a nation to have the people that we have. Um, and I know as a, as a recruiter of teachers that it's, it's hard to do that. There are fewer and fewer people who see teaching as a career. They're worried about the workload. They're worried about the pressure. They're worried about perhaps more than anything about the bureaucracy that takes them away from children, because it is that time spent teaching. That's what they go for, not to fill out spreadsheets and surveys and collect data on, on things as well. So uh, I think if we if we care about the future of our children, we should care about the future of our teachers uh, as well as a country and try and make teaching as a profession the thing that you know our, our most talented young people aspire to, that people switching careers, uh, you spent 20 years as a, as a, working as an accountant or a lawyer, um, maybe spend another decade working as a teacher. We should People should want to do those sorts of things. And I think we've got a way to go to make that true for everybody. Completely agree. I think that, that the teaching profession, I think, have quite rightly had this sort of resurgence in the nation's hearts and minds and sounds very dramatic. But actually they have, I think that you do look at teachers now and think actually you do do a fantastic job that actually it can't be easy you're underappreciated there are lots of hours and all this other kind of stuff and it has taken something like lockdown i think for and for parents to reflect on that to think actually there's there is more to it and so you do deserve more sort of love and recognition in some cases though there are teachers that will have great relationships um, with their pupils and pupils will have great relationships with those teachers um, obviously not always not always the case and I wondered if you sort of had a, a view of what a what a good working relationship looked like between students and teachers on the basis that students need to bring something to this as well this isn't as you say just teachers imparting knowledge that the, te the the students themselves need to to bring something to the table they they do it's a it's a relationship um most of the time it's it's a sort of normal light touch connection you respect each other um you learn plenty uh, and you and you move on and sometimes you just don't click with a teacher uh, uh now in secondary school that's that may be not such a terrible thing. There are, you, there are several teachers that you will have at any one time. At primary, that's tough because you'll be spending the whole year um, with that teacher. But, but because children have very different personalities and teachers do, they're not always going to, to align. But 
really it should in a good school that will go beyond the basic personality types there will be routines and systems and processes which mean that whether you like each other or not you still know how to behave towards each other uh, and there are sort of clear expectations about what children should do what adults should do everybody lives up to them and people learn uh, and move on in the meantime i think it's part of the richness of school that there are so many different sorts of of, of teachers and of course there's always that teacher which you dread getting their class because they're well known to be strict and fierce. And once you're in there, you realize that you you, you learn more in that lesson than you've ever learned before. Um, so again, stereotypes, uh, you, we need to, to, to avoid those two on this case. A, a shudder has gone down my spine um, as I've remembered my own physics teacher. I described that. I was, um, I was transported back. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got one of them that we remember. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say, not all physics teachers are the same. <laughs> um, the, the, I think what's, as a parent, what's quite interesting is looking at those times when the relationships don't go well. Um, what, what is it that parents should be doing or could be doing to, um, I suppose, help foster a better relationship? In some cases, I guess parents will um, automatically side with their child. This isn't right. I need to go in and have interventions and all that kind of thing. But I'm, from my own personal experiences, I'd imagine that it's much better if actually you can work that that through and encourage the child to approach this as you say in a in a more responsible way i mean it's uh, it's always our first instinct to to believe own children uh, and they'll come home and they'll talk about the injustices they've experienced and who did what and who said who to, who, to whom and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong uh, young people have a you know they see the world just like we do through their own lenses uh, as well so you know, it is your job to be your advocate and champion for your for your children. I mean, who else is going to do it if you uh, if you don't? But I think you should also you know, approach these sorts of things with the view that there are probably two sides to every story. You're going to stick up for your kids. You're going to make sure they get what they need, but you're, you're not going to automatically assume that all the other adults and children in the school have got it in for them uh, as well. Um, I think it, it is really important that, that when something isn't working, that you, you do go in and speak to the school. That's what schools are, are for. Go and have a conversation, uh, book a meeting with the class teacher or with the, you know, the head of year or the, the head teacher, if you can get them, uh, and, and explain um, what's going on. There's, there's a lot of children in most schools. They won't you know, see the unique experiences of your individual child, so explain it. Um, but one of the other important things is that people get very passionate and emotional, uh, particularly if they perceive an injustice against their child and you want to storm in and, and sort it out. And that rarely produces the outcomes that you're looking for uh, as well. You know, think it through. Don't come in when you're angry. You know, get your, you know, work out your arguments and so on. Respect the, the staff in the school um, and then come in and have a, a proper sort of adult to adult dialogue uh, about that. Uh, and most schools will, will take that as seriously as they possibly can um, you know ask them for their reasoning and their evidence for the approach that they're taking if you if you disagree with it try and understand you know on what basis they're making making their decisions if you're not satisfied and, and schools don't always get it right there are a series of avenues that you can take you can complain um, you can raise it up the hierarchy in the school if the classroom teacher hasn't been able to satisfy you talk to the head teacher and so on you can talk to the local authority 
um, or the board of uh, trustees if it's an academy chain. Um, my advice, again, is to work your way up if it's not working for people like to, you know, I've seen times when people have written a letter straight to the Secretary of State when they don't like what's going on in the school. With the, with the best will in the world, that's just going to get passed all the way back down uh, again. Uh, but So try and try and use some of, some of the channels. Um, try and understand, again, you know, the evidence base and the rationale for the decisions that are being made. Hopefully there is an evidence base. And if you're not hearing that, then maybe something is going wrong inside the school. That's, that's also role modelling the kind of behaviour that we'd want our young people to exhibit when they leave school and go on. Oh, it's very, very rational, very sensible um, and not jumping to conclusions. It is. And of course, schools are they're places where large numbers of young people come together. You imagine a typical secondary school, maybe a thousand teenagers uh, in that environment. That's uh, yes, that's a... Um, that, that can be chaotic, you know, left to its own devices. That would be a fairly chaotic environment. Um, schools have a set of rules and procedures in order to maintain a level of safety uh, as much as anything else, and then order uh, in which people can learn. Sometimes these can seem frustrating, but when you remember that you've got to get a thousand teenagers in the right place at the right time with the right equipment in front of the right person doing the right thing, it is, it is you know, to use the term sort of military operation is the wrong metaphor, but it can feel like that in terms of logistics uh, at times. And sometimes the needs of an individual, it's really hard to balance that against the needs of the whole class. And, and you hear this particularly in the debate around exclusions, for example. There is there is no doubt that that for a young person to be excluded from school is in most cases damaging to that young person. It is not a good outcome. They, they do not do as well uh, in later life. But, but the school is also thinking about what about the 29 other children in that class uh, as well? If this person has been violent um, or harassed people um, or these sorts of things, there are 29 children whose learning is suffering versus this. And, and I think I find schools, it's very hard to see from the outside, but very often there are these very difficult moral dilemmas about the needs of the many and the needs of the few that they're trying to, to manage. And I think we, we, as parents, we only see it from the needs of the few, our children. Uh, a head teacher has to think about this. What about these thousand kids? How do I get the best from, from each of them? Which doesn't mean that they, they don't agonize again about all of these individual decisions, but something that can feel unfair to us at an individual level may be the fairest thing when 29 other children are being considered. It's also tricky, isn't it? I mean, this time in their teen lives, I mean, forget the number, <laughs> thousands, hundreds of them in one place, that actually this time of their life, they they are um, geared brain-wise to push back, to test boundaries, to to take risks, to sort of experiment. And so it's inevitable. And we'll have seen it as we're, as we're watching them grow at home, that they will find personalities um, because teachers are individuals as well, where actually they're just not going to gel in the same way um, that they would with someone else. And that's not necessarily a reflection on anyone. It is it is just the way life is, isn't it? It absolutely is. And, and some people thrive in a, a social environment and other people don't flourish in that environment. It's interesting we've seen that during lockdown uh, as well, when, when people haven't been able to go into schools. There's definitely been some young people who've just so missed being in that environment with the routines and the norms or with their friends and the social side of, of things, maybe the more extrovert um, characters. There's others who wilt a bit in the intensity of that social uh, environment and have actually found that being at home, they get quite a lot done. And they, you know, I've heard a few say, uh, you know, I, I've learned more during lockdown uh, because there's just different personality types. And a good school tries to figure that out, creates spaces for different young people 
Um, teachers know that teenagers test the boundaries. They quite enjoy it by and large within the, within, within the limits of it. They, they like to see young people questioning, um, trying to figure things out, pushing and exploring that. There, there always has to be a boundary where the safety and welfare of others is concerned. And that's where we'll find schools step in hard. But, but again, generally, you find schools trying to loosen the rules as children get older, trying to give them more independence and autonomy, give them some control over that. It's always a judgment call because different children are at different paces in their life as well. But a good school will definitely try and pace that out. So one of the things I'm interested in, so we've obviously looked at the teachers and the students and, and touched, I think, there a bit on parenting. But what we've heard from other, uh, other guests on previous episodes is that parents are experts in their children. And obviously the teachers uh, in even a shorter space of time, given their wealth of experience, will be able to gauge the characters I'm fairly sure of, um, of the people sat in one classroom. But parents at the end of the day do know the ins and outs of their child. Do you think that the, the, the lockdown experience will have helped to strengthen those kinds of bonds between parents and teachers because parents are starting to get a better understanding of what teachers are going through? I think we've heard that, haven't we? We've, we've certainly heard people sort of talk about their newfound respect for teachers. Um, and it, you know, it's definitely the case that, that nobody knows or cares more in most cases about that young person than their parents or carers uh, that, that they have. And I think it's really important that, that professionals respect and recognize that and don't sort of assume they can, they, they, they don't need to get the consent of parents involved in, in some of their plans. At the same time, I don't think, the, the difficulty with education is that because we've all been through it, we all think we know what's going on about it, that we could all probably have a go uh, at teaching. But it's very different being on the receiving end of it than being on the, the, the giving end of it. Uh, and you start to notice, as I think many parents have had, just little things like the, the sheer difficulty of maintaining people's attention on the task at hand. Uh, you know, people, mine, everyone's attention tends to fade, over time gradually fade off. And, and particularly when you're at home and there's things in the fridge, things on the telly, you, 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 know, you name it. Just that, that sheer, how do you do that? How do you keep people thinking about um, algebra when there's so many distractions? And how do you do it with 30 young people instead of the two or the one or the three that I've got to, to, to look after? And I think that sort of, that, that sort of the seeing it through the other, the other side of the equation, you know what it's like to be a learner, but not many of us know what it's like to be a teacher. Uh, I think that's come home uh, over this, this period. And I, ho I hope that will help with a, a newfound respect for what schools are trying to do. Mm, absolutely. I also think that certainly what we found is that that parents are understanding much more about the nuances of the way that their child learns. And I think that's possibly part of that teacher type role that they that they may have had. And they can see that, well, if your attention is waning after half an hour, then actually lockdown is an opportunity for you to get up, run around the hallway or get yourself a glass of water or do something and come back in a way that actually as you said before the structures of school don't allow because you're not just looking at the individual you're looking at, at many and so I think what's been really interesting certainly from what we've heard is how then that plays with the parents wanting to find out much more about what's going on at school from the teachers in a, in a positive way I don't mean well marking the teacher's homework I guess is an analogy that you could make um but of, of wanting to find out like, what can we do to support you to get the best out of our child yes and again this sort of conflict between the, the individual and the collective comes through again the kind of things that you can do 
when it's one or two young people versus 30 or 100. Um, it, it just gets really interesting uh, then, I, I think. And a lot of what seems slightly arbitrary in schools becomes starts to make more sense when you think, oh, yeah, that's how you make it happen for 30 people at the same uh, at the same time. And of course, the, the sort of the pinnacle of educational intervention is the one-to-one -one tutoring that, that can go on. That, that does, the evidence is that that can make significant progress um, for young people. And that's just something we don't have access to across most of the, uh, the state system. So I think as people take those sort of insights into how, how that learns, if they could imagine how you might do that with, with lots and lots of young people at the same time, all of whom have different needs as well and have completely different outcomes uh, how you might put that collectively i think that would, that's quite an interesting sort of putting yourself in other people's shoes but also conversely what i'm thinking is that while as you say the opportunity for one-to-one -one tutoring is um is, isn't for everyone and um, for any number of good reasons that actually if the parents were open to being more supportive or taking on i should say a much more supportive kind of role and helping the teachers so actually you have got a uh, almost a one-on-one -on -one system where you can help with um, your child could uh, work through these kinds of aspects maybe talk about this kind of thing over dinner or do something like that where you have actually got a much more personalized approach to consolidating the learning that's happened in a classroom with 30 when that child comes home and it is uh, a much smaller environment for them to be um, I guess encouraged and there's there's significant opportunities that are not too hard to do uh, really. I mean, uh, first and foremost, paying attention and being interested in what's going on in school. I know it's hard. I, I think the answer to what did you learn today at school is, is most cases nothing. Uh, <laughs> and you have to really dig hard to get, you know, I think you spent, I think you did learn some things here. So what was it? And being excited and interested. I think for younger children reading together is just such a powerful um, thing to be able to do. Um, for those that have the opportunities, you know, if they're studying a particular subject in history, to be able to get out there and see, you know, visit one of the royal palaces or one of the environments in which this takes place. But I guess that then also draws me on to perhaps a slightly less happy conclusion, which is there are many children for whom that is the case and they have parents who can do that and want to do that for them. That's not, a, that's not everybody's home. Uh, environment uh, as well and uh, I think we need to sort of look out for and, and be aware as a society that there are some young people that, that although their parents really want this they're not in a position to be able to give it to them through through wealth or work or those sorts of things and they're a very tiny minority who are just not interested at all and are not giving that sort of care uh, as well and that's one of the reasons why despite the best efforts of schools we see we can see such a difference in outcomes which which also tells us that parents are hugely influential parents and carers can make a very significant difference in in what happens to their children which should both please us and and frighten us to a degree i think it is absolutely heartbreaking actually there is an a, almost a, a lottery um of the kind of support that children might get at home and as you said it's not through and uh, neglect i imagine makes up a very very small part of that but you've got um families where there may be a sole carer they're running two jobs all different kinds of opportunities and and Certainly, I think from from media headlines and and what you hear in the news, that actually crises affect the disadvantaged disproportionately more. It seems, which is um, which is a really really upsetting place to be. It is, but we've seen this during during the lockdown from COVID uh, nineteen, and it's it 
there's no easy stereotyping. There are families from the most desperate backgrounds who just prize education and sacrifice everything that they can to put that to put that forward. There are very privileged families who do not pay the right attention um, to this. So it's not easy to stereotype, but it is also clear that 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 if you are growing up in poverty, your parents are, are less likely to be able to do the things that they want to do with you. They they won't be able to afford the trip. Um, out to go and see the castle that you've just um, studied. They will, as you said, maybe doing multiple jobs with zero hours contracts. They may not be there when they when they need to be there to 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 listen to you um, read. Um, you may not have space to do your homework uh, at home. Uh, it may be crammed into a small environment with lots of people uh, around, so it's hard to concentrate. Uh, and so again, th during lockdown, I don't think this added anything new. To the system, I think all of these forces and factors have been with us for for decades or centuries uh, or more. But it did reveal it, um, and it, it made it very stark um, to us that some young people they went home, their parents could afford tutors, they had a space on the dining room table, they had a decent laptop, they had internet access, etc., uh, etc. Et for other young people, we could strip each of those away um, over time, and for some, we can add even worse boundaries that there is domestic abuse, that there is hunger. Uh, going on, that there is fear uh, within the household. And as you say, it is a tiny minority, but that's an important minority as well. So it's it's opened up those inequalities. Um, and uh, it, it's always the case that, that resilience, if you've got some wealth, you've got some backup, you've got a fallback plan, you can, you can work your way through this. Not everyone in our society does uh, at the moment, which is important that we think about, well, what do we do for those groups now? That's, I guess, where, where the teachers become more important again um for those pupils is it's i guess is it supplementing the kind of support that they um that others might be getting at home i mean if if teachers don't who does that's the that is the question and i, I always find it, it schools are in a unique position in our society um in that they're one of the few parts of government which are there for positive things I, I, there aren't they're not the only one but you know you don't often go to the police station because something good has happened to you or to or to expect something good to happen um, to you. Hospitals sometimes, but also hospitals are also can be associated with, with difficult times in life. A school is there for growth and opportunity. Um, it's trusted, it's there in the middle of the local community. And, and uniquely about government, it has a long-term relationship with young people. And often you can spot the signs of something bad happening, not through the obvious signs, but through a change in behavior. And, and if you're a GP who sees that that young person once every six months, or you're acting as a locum and you've not seen them uh, before, you, you may not spot that. But a school can say that was a previously happy and ebullient child who's now withdrawn and quiet. What's what's happening uh, there? So that that ability to spot those things is is vital, and that's what's so frightening. And this is why the Children's Commissioner and others speak so heavily about let's get children into school because six months without that kind of relationship. Now, 95%, 99% of families—that's all fine. But the one percent, um, you, you start to get to get to get quite worried about. But equally, though, I'd say that we the fact that schools are there and noticed shouldn't excuse us, the rest of us, from the role that we have to play in this. If we just ask it and leave it to schools alone to sort out the problems of our society, we're asking a pretty big job 
uh, of schools, and they will do it. I mean, teachers will feed children out of their own pocket. They will wash their clothes. They will help uh, families navigate the benefit system. They'll do all of these things. But while they're doing that, they're not teaching. Uh, and they're not, that's not the stuff that they're trained for. We need a good social care system. We need a good child and adolescent mental health system. We need a vibrant local economy. All of these things have to come together for a young person to have the opportunities uh, that they need. Um, yes, schools can remediate some of that, but I prefer the fact that schools could focus on teaching and learning uh, first. Um, unfortunately, we're not in that society at this point in time. As you say, I mean, it's fantastic that, that schools and teachers as individuals do do those kinds of things, but we oughtn't be calling on them to do it. It's not their, it isn't their job um, and the, the role that they have. Uh, not in an ideal world. I mean, definitely the, the, the job of spotting changes, uh, being a connector, being the sort of front line, you know, they could do some, some sort of first aid and, and triage of this. They're in a unique position. And of course, by, by educating young people, they're also giving them the tools to take control of their own lives and to build on that. The things that schools do are vital to this, but it would be great if they were surrounded by a web of other vibrant support services that they could pull in when they needed to. Or even, and I guess, completing our circle, uh, which is obviously actually a triangle, by by having that link back to a receptive parent who is open to listening to actually the insights that the teacher has about uh, the behaviour that they've seen, a change in that behaviour or an opportunity that, that if this was explored, then something more might happen. And, you know, if you really want to continue completing our full circle, we can go back to the fact that schools are very different places to they were when we were at them. Uh, and a lot of parents, I know, I, I still feel it when I walk through a school gate, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an established person, I've achieved plenty of my, my life, I've, I've even led the head teachers union for a, uh, for a while, but um, I still feel a little bit nervous when I walk through a school gate. Uh, I feel a bit like I'm 11 years old uh, again uh, when I talk to a, to a head teacher. I think we all do that. And that does make it difficult for parents who perhaps had a, a less less pleasant school uh, and, and experience themselves, that they, they come coming with a, a natural suspicion uh, about what are they trying to achieve. And all I would say is that actually things have changed a huge amount. They're on your side. They may make choices which maybe don't seem always in your interest because they're trying to balance the choices of lots of other children uh, as well. But 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 obviously go in respectfully, but go in more confidently than you might expect and, and have those conversations. Find out what they're doing. Find out what they're trying to teach so that you can add to it. If you've got worries, they want to help you uh, as well. I mean, I, one of my last school visits when I was with the National Association of Head Teachers, I visited the, uh, a head teacher I know well up in up in Leeds, uh, and his office was just full of furniture and suitcases uh, and belongings. I, was, I thought, I said, Stephen, are you are you moving out? What's going on here? And he said, No, um, one of my families um, was evicted. Uh, the night before, uh, and they all their furniture was out on the street. So I said, "Look, leave them in my office while I while you go and sort it out." And then he sat perched amongst all of these belongings. And I'm thinking, that's not the stereotypical image of a head teacher that we hold from our days, which they're austere and distant and and full of discipline. The kind of care and openness and, and just readiness to help, I think, runs through our system. So uh, I would encourage people to, to, to take a fresh look at our schools if they can. There is a, there's a hole in society, isn't there, that needs to be plugged, and I'm not sure how we go about doing it as individuals, as families, as, but it's um, yeah, incumbent on all of us, I think, to do, to do as much as we can. Yes, uh, and it takes, it takes all of us. None of us have all of those parts um, to it, and we have different skills and different perspectives. And uh, if we could get those working together, 
for each young person with them at the center, then, then I think we can do it. I think we see it. It, it there are, you know, it sounds, it's easy to get gloomy given the, where we're focusing in on here, but there are many success stories uh, about it. There are schools which are doing astonishing things um, for the young people. There are schools with networks into the local GP center, the local um, youth center. You know, they, they can connect all of these, these things. And we know it's possible. Uh, it will take a big commitment of resource and it will take parents and schools and the rest of government and businesses and charities all working together. Um, but I think there's a few who show us the way on that. My thanks to Russell for taking the time to talk to me today. That was such a thought-provoking episode. It's always been a worthwhile exercise to consider situations from someone else's point of view. And we've done a lot of that through the two series of this podcast, thinking about the student's perspective. In this episode, of course, we took a moment then to consider the role that teachers play beyond teaching facts and figures and their interaction with students and parents. And I think the whole thing has been, has been as I say, really interesting. It can be easy to lose sight of the incredible job that teachers do. And at the moment, they're doing that in really difficult circumstances. And I think it's especially hard to keep hold of that notion if there's a disconnect in the relationship between the teachers and the students. The one thing I always try to remember is that teachers are individuals and just how we won't click with everyone that we meet, there are bound to be times that a teacher and a teen clash. And actually, I've seen this firsthand. A teacher that my son didn't get on with, and I think it's fair to say that that feeling was mutual, has been incredible with my daughter and she's coming on in leaps and bounds. Looking back, I wish that I'd done more to try to get to the bottom of the situation with Jake by both encouraging him to tackle the root of that problem and by having a frank and open conversation with the teacher involved. And I think I probably would have done that if I'd considered that it was more of a partnership with the school and the teachers rather than them fulfilling um, just a teaching function, I guess. It can also be the case that we as parents can sometimes feel intimidated. As Russell was saying, there are times that it's felt like 11-year-old me has been sat talking to a teacher about my 16-year-old son. But, as Russell said, we should be more confident. I mean, we're on the same side and we're striving for the same positive outcomes. And I think we as parents have a very clear role to play in helping to reach those outcomes. We've heard that with the best will in the world, teachers are not one-to-one -one tutors. And while many of us don't have the time or even the skills to take up that role, there's still plenty that we can do. Paying an interest, exploring what's been learnt at school, and where possible maybe weaving in some of those retrieval practices that we heard Kate Jones talking about in the Testing Times episode. With the study a buddy approach, we advocate spending 20 minutes on a Sunday evening to look back on the week and, and also to plan the week ahead. And such a simple thing, and in such a short space of time, can have a really profound impact. There's a real opportunity for us to be involved, and I think that many of us want to, but we're just not sure to what extent we'd be able to. And it's worth remembering that you might not be an educational specialist, but no one knows your young person like you do, and that's an important aspect of how the combined efforts will help your child to reach their potential. It's important to remember that our children are most likely to excel when the relationship between them, us as parents, and the teaching body is working at its best. And these are relationships like any other. 
They're founded on trust and respect for the role that each of us has to play. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode interesting and with the continuing looming threat of school closures, possibly more timely than any of us would want. If you did enjoy it, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave a review and a five-star rating. It's a great way of helping us to reach other parents and there's any number of us who could do with a helping hand at the moment. Of course, I'd encourage you to share the link to this and other episodes with your friends too. It's always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.